1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagen Door, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. David Atwell about his new book, Islamic Shangri-La, Inter-Asian Relations and Lhasa's Muslim Communities, 1600 to 1960, published by the University of California Press in 2018. Dr. Atwell, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you began the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian studies, and particularly in Tibet and China?
2: Sure. Um, Let me first say I'm just delighted to be invited to participate in this series. Uh, It serves such a great uh, value to the broader community. Um, But to answer your question, I'm currently a professor of history at Penn State University. I've taught here for nearly 20 years. And I guess, like a lot of people, I find it hard to pinpoint exactly where my interest in China and Tibet more specifically began. But again, like most people, I probably would trace it back to my undergraduate years. I went to a small college, small liberal arts college, uh, Whitman College in Eastern Washington in the town of Walla Walla. And it's, you know, I'm old enough that back in the 80s, really everybody was talking about Japan back then. And so, uh, language study in China and even study abroad programs were very few on the ground. And so um, initially, I was more interested in Europe. I spent a, a year abroad in Italy and some time in France. But when I returned from my senior year, I learned about an exchange program my college had with several universities in China, whereby uh, we would bring professors over from China to spend two years at Whitman College, and then usually a recent Grad or two would be sent over to teach English in China, and so when I graduated my senior year, I applied for this program and I was accepted and sent to teach uh, English at Yunnan University in Southwest China. Um, I that was the fall of 1989, so a lot of things were happening, and so when I arrived in Kunming, uh, things were very different, uh, and that year transformed my life in many ways Uh, obviously at first time i was in the classroom which i enjoy a lot i met my wife there and we just celebrated 30 years of marriage so that's gone well but obviously uh, 1989 was a transformative year Uh, and and not just the horrific events of june 4th Um, it You know, it it was really on the cusp that Yunnan still had, most of the cities were closed to foreigners. Um, Foreigners were only allowed to live in five cities in the province without special approval. 20% of my salary was still paid in that FEC currency, the foreign exchange currency, the only currency you could uh, convert to uh, dollars. And my students in that period, were, when they graduated that year, they were still assigned jobs by the state. So my point here, I guess, is that many of the elements from the early 80s were still in play. And so it gave me a really keen insight into the way that China had been for the previous decade or so. But also it was turning towards many of the changes that we see today. Um, the economy was starting to get going. So I feel really privileged. And so it was a really exciting period, I guess is what I'm saying. And so I got excited about uh, life in China and decided to pursue a doctoral degree in history at the University of Hawaii. Um, and I poked around a bunch of projects. I knew I wanted to study Yunnan. And luckily, I ran into Drew Gladney, who had just arrived at University of Hawaii as well. And so between him and several other people, I began to focus on the topic of my first book, The Panthea Rebellion, and generally in Islam in southwest China more broadly. But as far as how I got into Tibet, I guess the best way to put it would be that Yunnan was kind of my gateway drug to Tibet. Um, My research in The Panthea Rebellion, I, I kept stumbling across these details um, of how the world of Yunnan overlapped with that of Tibet, Tibetan traders were coming down to Dali and other cities in Yunnan, um, how much of Northwest Yunnan actually could be considered part of calm area of Tibet. So as far as how I became interested in Asian studies, um, I guess really Yunnan is the place that's kind of shaped me, um. One of my professors in graduate school used to call me with a fair amount of malice, I should add, uh, Yunnanista, in the the sense that I I seem to see elements of Yunnan everywhere. And so it's kind of a title I carry with pride now, since I've spent nearly a decade of the past 30 years living in Yunnan. My two children have gone to Chinese school there and now concurse fluently in the local dialect. So uh, in short, I would say from beginning to end, Yunnan was how I ended up becoming interested in Asian studies.
1: Well, thank you. Um, thank you for sharing that. In Yunnan, there's a pretty large um, Tibetan Buddhist community, quite a lot of pilgrimage sites and recently sort of commercialized markets that sell a lot of kind of Buddhist goods.
2: Well, I yeah, know, right. I mean, one of the things that I was... Stunned by was that because Dali was one of the cities that was open. Was there is this Buddhist mountain right near Dali called Jizushan, which is literally Chicken Foot Mountain, and you can find um, Tibetan articles there. And looking through the historical records, we know that Buddhist came, pilgrims came down and circumambulated that mountain, uh, like they do many other. Uh, Tibetan mountains. So yeah, and then of course, the, the, the renaming of Zhongdian in Northwest Yunnan is Shangri-La or Shangri-La um, is definitely trying to monetize that element as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, well, let's go into the book. Um, so Islamic Shangri-La uh, traces the history of the Tibetan Muslim community from the 17th century to the 20th century Um, Let's maybe start with the simple question first. Can you uh, tell us briefly, who are the Tibetan Muslims or the Mm Kaché?
2: Yeah, um, I guess the simplest questions are in some ways the most difficult to ask. And this is a question that I I still wrestle with, even having finished the book. Uh, But it's a great place to start. Who are the Tibetan Muslims? Is in many many ways the question that runs throughout my entire book. Uh, It's the question that led me to this project. Um, But it's also a question I worry uh, quite a lot about how the simplicity of it lures us into a false sense of security, maybe um, a belief that can we really confidently speak of what we're talking about, maybe when in fact we can't. And I I say that because I think a lot of people come to this topic with a, a misplaced confidence in who the Tibetan Muslims are. So maybe I'm, I'm just going to take a step back and first kind of break this down. And I don't I do not do this because I think this, you know, doing a typical academic thing where we're looking at definitions, but the basic question of what even Tibet is, I think, in the field and among scholars still is fairly controversial in that, what do we mean by when we talk about Tibet? Um, often in China, when we talk about Tibet, we're talking about the Tibetan autonomous region. Um, often when the Dalai Lama talks about our Tibetans in exile, we're talking more about this kind of ethnographic, wherever Tibetans live, that's Tibet. Um, The three traditional areas of Amdo, Kam, and Utsang being kind of the territorial definitions. But scholars have also kind of knocked this back and and I think the most common breakdown is that we can talk about a political Tibet. That is the area that was ruled traditionally from Lhasa by the Dalai Lama on the one hand, and then the larger area that includes more Eastern Tibet, Amdo and Kam, that was more where you know, was dominated by ethnic majority of Tibetans. We can call that more of an ethnographic Tibet. And I, I, I put this out front because... For my purposes today, when I'm talking about Tibet and when I talk about Tibet in the book, I primarily mean the territory that was historically controlled by the Dalai Lama. As we'll see, there are some exceptions, important exceptions. But um, for the most part, that's what I mean. And then the second thing is, how do we define what a Tibetan is, because this is the other misconception that I find I encounter a lot when I'm talking about this with other people and that I encountered in writing this book. And that is this term Tibetan Muslim often comes off to Anglophone speakers as kind of a contradiction in terms, right? How can you be Tibetan and Muslim? Um, I think a basic common assumption is that to be Tibetan means that you have to be Buddhist. But for specialists, we, we know certainly that there are non Buddhists in Tibet. Um, but equally emphatically, we have to admit that Buddhism is an essential part of this Tibetan identity. So, how do we get around this idea that you can be Tibetan and Muslims. Well, there's a bunch of terms in Tibetan that help us break this down. In particular, there's these broad categories in Tibetan of insider and outsider, Namba and Chiba. And these generally people have suggested because the Kaji are in this outsider group, use this as evidence to suggest that in a kind of essentialist way, Kaji are not Tibetan the hitch with this terminology, this insider-outsider terminology, is that it's really less concerned with religious beliefs. Um, It's it's actually more of a Lassa-centric view of the world that also, in that circle that they draw around the insiders, also excludes many calm and omdo nomads. And so, what we encounter, I think what this terminology highlights, is that this idea of Lhasa being um, this Lhasa view of the world is one that we have to be very careful of. So, I just kind of put that out there first because I really am mostly talking about uh, Kaji that are in central Tibet, that area around, in and around Lhasa. So, and I should also add that when I speak of Tibetan Muslims, I'm really talking about those. Muslims in that area. I'm not really talking about the Muslims in Amdo in Qam, which the term Kaji is inflected in very different ways because there's, um, especially in Amdo, a whole other cohort of different Muslims there. And I should also have, if I can be allowed for one more caveat, is that when I started this book, I actually hoped to kind of delineate how the Muslim communities the Tibetan Muslim communities were different in each of these three traditional areas um, on Amdo, Kham, and Utsang. And I wrote a short article that kind of was the, the result of those early that early spade work. But in short, I, I really quickly realized I had far too much material on just loss and Central Tibet, and it was already complicated enough, so I didn't want to muddy the waters. So let me get to the, the core of your question, is what, what do we mean by kaji? What do we mean by Tibetan Muslims? Well, the first thing is that we know historically we can trace that community back to the 1600s and right around the time of the rise of the 5th Dalai Lama. Um, an individual who looms large in Tibetan history. He was essentially the first Dalai Lama to wield effective uh, temporal and spiritual power over Tibet. And also under his leadership, we know uh, historically that he invited um a large number of foreigners to come and aid in the erection of this new state, um, serving as advisors, as artists, as teachers. And among these foreigners that came were a group of Muslims known as Kashmiri Muslims. And, and the Kashmiri doesn't mean they exactly, necessarily, came from Kashmir itself most likely they were um, Kashmiri Muslims coming from the Kathmandu Valley. Kashmiri is essentially a a term that that's where they traced their origins back to. But regardless, um, by the uh, mid-1600s, for sure, uh, this initial community had been established. And soon thereafter, no more than a decade or two, there was a second group of Muslims. These were Chinese Muslims who also arrived and also set up a permanent community that remained there continuously up to the modern era. So that by the early 1900s, the city of Lhasa itself had no fewer than four mosques, and most every other major city in that area of Tibet also had a community of Tibetan Muslims. To the result that by the fall of the Qing dynasty in 1900. 19- 12 or 1911, the rise of the Republic in 1912, we have a pretty good th- bead on the number of Tibetan Muslims that were there, at least a ballpark figure. And minimally, I'm pretty confident in saying that they made up at least 10% of Lhasa's population, and I would say a substantial portion across central uh, Tibet. Now, the term kaji itself, maybe some listeners um, are interested in knowing where that comes. And and this also is often in these kind of um, non-scholarly summaries of the Tibetan Muslims is uh, confused or at least a bit muddled in that the term kaji has three different definitions. The most basic definition, the earliest definition uh, historically and linguistically, is that kaji literally means Kashmiri, and that comes from, as I just suggested, that the earliest Muslims were uh, from Kashmir, and so they, they, this term just simply grafted itself on to mean Muslim more generically, not just from Kashmir. And then as time went on, we can see in the documents that the term then evolved into a third yet different Kind of specificity, and that was to mean Tibetan Muslims themselves. Now, again, from an outsider perspective, non-native speakers, there's a lot of desire to kind of take this back to just meaning Kashmiri. But I think if you talk to most Tibetans, this isn't a problem. It's a, you can pivot between these three meanings um, in a way that there isn't very much confusion, much like the word Indian. Uh, you know, can mean somebody from the subcontinent, can be a na- Native American, maybe even somebody from the Indies, as Christopher Columbus originally used the term. So much the same way, kaji, it, it's, it's not confusing for the users of that term, but it has resulted in confusion among outsiders. So again, kind of today when I'm talking about kaji, I'm specifically using it as a term that means Tibetan Muslim.
1: Thank you for the clarification and and this really detailed kind of introduction. Um, The second question that we're going to move on to, right, talks about um, the approach that the book takes. Um, So centering on the Tibetan Muslims, your book questions the popular portrayals of Tibet as this um, isolated, ethnically homogenous, monolithically Buddhist uh, place. But it also challenges standard Indian and Chinese narratives of the region, which often paint um, the kache as foreign, separate, mutually unrecognizable rather than as indigenous, integrated, and familiar. Um, This is a quote from your book. Can you tell us more about these uh, interventions of the book and what is at stake here when we turn our attention to the kache to look at the history of Tibet and Himalayan Asia?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, that question really, again, drives kind of at the heart of a key theme in my book. And as you could tell from my last answer, I'm, I'm more than just a little bit sensitive to this kind of erroneous notion that Kaji are not just Muslims who happen to be in Tibet, but these are, in fact, Tibetan Muslims. You, you, you quote my book and you talk about how sometimes the question of Kaji being foreign, separate, and mutually unrecognizable, and this is... Perhaps the most pervasive barrier I see in most treatments of the Tibetan Muslims. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on here, but I just want to say that I came to this project with precisely that, that same misperception. Um, I, the, the, the funding that I got for this the proposal that I wrote to get the funding for this project, I in fact believed that the Kaji were simply Chinese Muslims who lived in Lhasa. Even if it was a permanent community, I think I thought of them as simply Chinese. And so as I got deeper into it, um, I, and I realized that that was an erroneous view. I, the book really, in many ways, is kind of a multi-leveled argument against that. So, uh, much like the terminology I just discussed of Kaji being linked back to Kashmir fallaciously, I've spent a lot of time trying to make sure that on the Chinese side also, that the, the Hui, the, the Chinese term for uh, Chinese Muslims, is also not misappropriated and overly uh, deterministic, suggesting that these are Chinese Muslims just living in Lhasa. But So your other part of that question was um, – what what are the interventions of this book in that argument? So when I speak to people who have read my book, um, and one of the first reactions I get is, you know, at some parts of the book, Tibetan Muslims simply fade into the background and, perhaps they, they mean that as a critique. I, I'm not sure. Or maybe it's a statement that I've not delivered the book that they believe I promised, which was exclusively on Tibetan Muslims. But actually, I interpret this as a compliment, because I hope that this book would not place the Tibetan Muslims in some sort of, I don't know, splendid isolation. I, what I really set out is I wanted to describe how integral Tibetan Muslims were to Tibetan society. And Tibet. Is involved in Himalayan Asia, and so to be integral to Tibet, I think you have to be integral to that larger world. And so, I spent a lot of time positioning the Tibetan Muslims uh, to describe to the readers that they're not just part of Tibet, but they're part of this broader Himalayan world. And as um, commercial travelers, caravaniers, and such, it, it's not hard to see that, but. What became more apparent to me as I worked through this book was just how often we we let that broader Himalayan Asia also drop out of our descriptions of Tibet. Often, it's, we're focused just on Lhasa, um, but often the deeply there, Tibet's deeply involved uh, communications and relations with Kashmir, Ladakh. Nepal, Sikkim, and Bhutan on multiple levels, commercially, religious, whatever, um, is integral to understanding how Tibet saw itself across the 16th, 17th, 18th, and even up to the present. So um, the answer to my own question then is about why I expend energy on detailing the experiences of non-Tibetan Muslims in Tibet in my study of Tibetan Muslims is because I wanted to show just how normal it was for Tibetan Muslims to be involved in these very Tibetan relationships. Um, The other kind of element of this is that I, one of my critiques of traditional scholarship on Tibet, and definitely on previous scholarship on Tibetan Muslims, what little there is, was that they tended to be written from the perspectives of China and India. And here I'm really talking about almost geopolitical perspectives, um, diplomatic histories primarily that are written from the perspectives of Beijing and Delhi, right? The central governments. Perspectives that I think never really acknowledge the presence of uh, the Himalayan Asia, but actually the Chinese accounts don't really acknowledge India and the India accounts don't really acknowledge China. So that by Bringing in the Himalayan world, I'm trying to use that as sort of an antidote to um, this problem. And let me just finish this, my answer, by just kind of relaying one element that I hope to write actually an article on someday. And this is this notion of how the Himalayan world is misunderstood by these more distant perspectives. And this is a myth that I call, that is labeled the five fingers of Tibet. And it comes out of... uh, a myth, uh, a misappropriation and misunderstanding of the geopolitical perspectives of China. And this myth usually directly quotes Mao in the early 1950s as, as saying that something along the lines that Tibet is China's uh, right-hand palm, and that the five fingers that are attached to that palm, Ladakh, Nepal, Sikkim, Bhutan, and... Um, northeast frontier region, um, are going to be the next steps, right? So this idea that somehow Tibet has, quote-unquote, liberated Tibet and that they're going to move on to these next Himalayan states as part of this liberation policy. Now, this theory suggests, then this is this kind of sinister intent that Mao had very early. In fact, some of these articles suggest it was as early as the 1930s when, in fact, we know Mao had no real concrete thoughts of Tibet, let alone beyond that. But you'll see um, right up to this day this myth being uh, foisted around and in, in popular, especially Southeast and Asian, Asian magazines. In fact, one of the first papers that cited this book cites my kind of uh, attack on this idea uh, in a footnote as only one side of the argument, right? They cite, you know, two or three articles that talk about this and then uh, use mine as a counterpoint. But what's funny about this is that, first of all, Mao never said anything close to that. In fact, he very rarely mentioned Tibet, let alone mentioned any of the Himalayan states. But I bring this up for a rationale why I bring in some of the episodes I do, because in many ways, fact is far stranger than fiction. And In one of the chapters, I talk about this man, K.I. Singh, who was um, a popular politician in kind of the post-colonial Nepal. He became prime minister of Nepal in 1957, but had earlier been a part of a failed coup attempt and uh, fled northward into Tibet. And uh, his disappearance led to speculation very similar to this Five Fingers of Tibet, where he was being lured there by the communists and that he was part of this plot to liberate Nepal. Yet, when he returned three years later, actually, it was nothing of the sort. The the Chinese had not tried to convert him. He um, came back actually a, a more fervent supporter of Indian influence in Nepal, and then went on to serve as prime minister for a very short time. So I guess again, kind of in specific answer to your question, these Himalayan interconnections are more fluid um, and more interesting than many of these tired and I think outdated falsehoods that get trotted out simply because they these falsehoods often cast China or India as kind of the specter of evil in the reg- really region. And I think um, foremost, I think including Himalayan Asia as the foil to understand the Kaji and the Tibetan Muslims, it gives a real depth and, I'm not sure if this is even a word, dimensionality uh, of the Tibetan Muslims that would otherwise be lost.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Thank you. Yeah, these are very crucial points to consider um, when we think about Tibet and the Himalayan region. Um, so let's go into the chapters of the book. Chapter one, titled uh, Boundaries of Belonging, suggests that we consider Carol McGranahan's concept of arrested histories to understand how the Gacha's position in Tibet's history, quote, remains intact but inaccessible, unquote. Can you elaborate on this point a little bit?
2: Oh, i be very happy to. I'm really, actually, I'm so delighted that you brought in uh, Kelma McGranahan's concept of Arrested Histories into this discussion because, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I included a quote from her in the first chapter and the last chapter. You can kind of see how this idea bookends many of my ideas. And that's because, uh, like a lot of us encounter, that there's you, we all have this moment when you're reading another scholar's work that suddenly and permanently transforms your own view of your own work. And so uh, McGranahan's book, Arrested History, has very much had that impact on me. Um, for those listeners who maybe aren't familiar, this uh, McGranahan's book examines Tibetan resistance movement from the mid, or actually, yeah, from the late mid fifties on into the sixties, and talks about the resistance fighters as refugees, and really plays with this idea of politics of history and memory. And specifically, her metaphor, Arrested arrested Histories, is talking about how specific events, um, facts, but most importantly, voices that are not really forgotten per se, but um, have been omitted from the mainstream, I think what she calls unitary Tibetan identity. And so I adapted this to the Tibetan Muslims because I, I found this metaphor really spoke to what I discovered or what I believe um, happens to the Tibetan Muslims. And it, it, they're so similar to these resistance fighters that uh, Carol delineates so clearly and so eloquently writes about because the Kaji, I, I can't argue that they've been abandoned. I can't suggest that they've even been erased from Tibetan history. Their presence is really and truly visible in every sphere of Tibetan society, commercial, political, social. If you look at Western visitors and Chinese visitors, you see remarks about their presence dating back three, four centuries. But similar to uh, these Tibetan resistance fighters, The Tibetan Muslims seem to be positioned on kind of this double periphery. I'm I'm not quite sure what the right metaphor is, but that they defy the very prominent preconceptions of Tibet and Tibet's past. And so they don't fit neatly into kind of this popular conception of Tibet today. And so thus they're not included. It kind of goes back to this idea that this preconception that Tibetans must be Buddhist. But it's also because I don't think, as we'll you know, talk about as I get to it later in the book, is that when a large number of these Tibetan Muslims leave, they essentially empty uh, central Tibet of a good portion of this population. So they don't fit into the modern state or condition of Tibet either. So in, my, in, in these ways, then, I say I see their history um, accurately being captured by McGranahan's phrase or, um, idea of arrested history. Um, and I should also say kind of as an afterthought that she also relies very heavily upon oral history. And, um, I also relied very heavily on oral interviews with many of the Tibetan Muslim communities outside of Tibet. And they served as my inspiration, uh, for my interviews and, um, they definitely shaped how I understood the Tibetan Muslims. And I think so she and I also share that part. And if you'll forgive me, I just want to include in kind of a sheer happenstance. I received an email last night that one of my key informants who who truly put me on the path to this um, project, his father was the president of the Tibetan Muslim Refugee Association and lived in Kalimpong. And he shared with me many of his father's documents. And I just learned late last night that he passed away uh in February from a brain tumor. And so these, you know, it's these these connections that I think both Carol McGranahan and I make that um are core elements um of our our representation of the past.
1: Well, thank you, and I'm sorry for your loss. I think this idea is really important and I think it could be a very useful concept for studying other parts of East Asian Himalayan regions, right? Also considering ethnic minorities such as the Uyghurs and the Inner Mongolians as well. So chapter two, um, entitled Confronting the Unexpected, here discusses the complexities of religious, ethnic, and national identity of the Tibetan Muslims. Um, I guess we already talked about this um, Quite extensively um, in the beginning of the interview, but can you maybe tell us a little bit more about what it meant to be Kachin in Tibet, especially uh, in terms of religious, uh, ethnic, and national identities?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'll keep this short because you're right. I think I covered it quite at length at the beginning. But like one of my favorite stories that I include right at the beginning of this chapter is that uh, description, that vignette that I have of the American fighter pilots or the the American air crew who was flying the hump in 1943 and their plane flying back to India got blown off course for a variety of reasons, and that they were forced to uh, bail out of the plane uh, outside of Lhasa. And when they were discovered by a Tibetan, or as I should say, the first Tibetan that discovered them, um, they were greeted with the phrase, Assalamu alaikum, right? May peace be upon you. And the pilot who had been through some cultural courses, I guess, back in India, knew the correct response and replied, alaikum assalam," right, and, and maybe with you. And as, again, as I say in the book, I, I don't use this as some sort of white intermediary tale, but I love this idea that somehow you can be flying a plane over Tibet, you can be, for whatever reason, forced to jump out of it, and the first Tibetan you encounter is Tibetan, a Tibetan Muslim. And so, it, for me, that's a great metaphor of just how pervasive Um, the kaji were. Um, And it kind of, I think, inverts this notion that somehow they're thin on the ground, that Tibetan Muslims are somehow unintegrated or unfamiliar with Tibetan society. And in this instance, uh, Sanula, the man who uh, rescued them, was so familiar with Tibetan politics, Tibetan connections, is that he was very able to lead this crew back to Lhasa, put them in touch with the uh, Tibetan government and help them along their way back to India. And as I said earlier, we know from uh, multiple other accounts, uh, historical accounts, we from Jesuit accounts in the 1700s, uh, French missionary accounts in the 1800s, and even Heinrich Harrer in Seven Years in Tibet all mention these uh, uh, Kaji. So let me just give you a few one or two le- more examples, and so I mentioned earlier that there was four mosques in Tibet, and I think maybe that's the one thing that will help readers anchor this idea of how integrated they were. Uh, Lhasa has four mosques, and I often say this to even other scholars of Tibet, and they'll they'll you know they'll contradict me and say that's not possible, and. The earliest mosque, uh, which is slightly outside of the city of Lhasa, the Kajilinka, was built no later than 1650. It was definitely built uh, under the Fifth Dalai Lama. Some people say, at least oral history suggests that he actually granted the land for them to build on. So again, from the very beginning, we see that they're you know they're welcome, they're integrated. Uh, the Grand Mosque is uh, the most prominent mosque in Lhasa today. Uh, today quite larger than it was up until 1959. Um, it was probably built no later than the seventh 17th century. The Dode Mosque is built in the 18th century, again, slightly outside of the city. But the fourth mosque, this what's called the small mosque, is uh, built in the early 19th century, and it's built right along the edge of the Kora, this uh, circumambulation route that... Uh, Tibetan Buddhists do around the sacred sites of Lhasa. And the front doors of the mosque open right up onto this. And I think that's a great metaphor, again, that there is no record of any conflict or any obstruction for the building of a mosque, uh, you know, that literally bumped right up against one of the most sacred roots um, in Tibetan Buddhism. So, this is all to say that um, we know that there's this large Kaji population. Um, just to wrap up this, my answer, these communities were not monolithic. I've already hinted that the two big divisions were between those Kaji who traced their origins to South Asia, and they s- settled in and around the central. Uh, market known as the Barkor market, right around the Jokong temple, one of the most uh, sacred sites. And thus, they're known in Tibetan as the Barkor Kaji, uh, South Asian origins, and they still tend to be uh, uh, traders with ties to South Asia. They're usually fluent in Tibetan, Hindi, and Urdu. Then the other group is the group that traces their orange origins to China, and they settled along the southeastern corner of uh, Vlasa, rather, in a neighborhood known as the Wabaling, and they're known as the Wabaling Kaji. They tended to earn their living as vegetable sellers and butchers, but even if you, again, might think that as butchers they might have been viewed negatively by Tibetans, it wasn't the case. They were actually known for having the best vegetables and the best meat in the city. So it was actually these, for both communities, were um, far from being ostracized. They were known for very particular attributes, often they were the best musicians. They were also said, one of the most popular stereotypes among Tibetans, is that both communities could speak this very um, elaborate, pure version of the Lhasa dialect, like a lot of Areas The capital city is said to speak the most perfect. And here we have these kaji speaking that um, dialect. So I just, uh, I'll leave it there. But I think the two takeaways here is again, that for kind of my final effort to hit this home is that the kaji were always seen as Tibetan. And I'll just give one example that we can identify that they were very clear, Tibetans in Central Tibet were very clear on who the foreign Muslims were. Um, For the most part, we'll talk about this maybe later with the the children of mixed parents, but Tibetans obviously knew who was foreign and who wasn't foreign. But even along kind of these long-term sojourners, uh, there was one group known as the Ladakhi Kaji, Kaji who came from Ladakh. And they were also very familiar uh, strangers, so to speak, because they were, um, they had signed, Ladakh had signed a treaty with the Tibetan government and they had this three, uh, triennial, every three-year caravan. And with that, they had specific tax breaks and legal protections, and they were actually given a post um, of office in Tibet, in Lhasa. And so we we see this very finely delineated divisions in the Tibetan world that knows who are truly the Tibetan Muslims and who are these other foreign Muslims. And the Kaji themselves um, were very much uh, of the former of being very much Tibetan Muslims.
1: Thank you. In chapter three, speaking of children of mixed parentage, chapter three entitled How Half-Tibetans Made Tibet Whole, the politics of half-Tibetans, particularly of being half Nepalese, right? These groups are called Katara in your book, um half Chinese, uh, the Coco, as well as the uh the Kache, right? in Republican China are explored. How were these people of mixed parentage um understood, especially with regard to the nationalist government's rhetoric of the unity of the five races?
2: Yeah, this is great. I mean, this actually kind of ties in, again, to your earlier question about my effort to tie this into Himalayan Asia, right? And so, uh, as, as I hope by this point I've made abundantly clear, uh, the Tibetan Muslims of Central Tibet were unequivocally considered Tibetan. So, by looping them in with these other half-Tibetans, I'm trying to essentially confront many of the false perceptions that many um, earlier accounts had, which I think falsely grouped them together. And the reason they did this was because these two groups, these half Nepalese, known as Katsaras, and these half Chinese, known as Kokos, were again fairly prominent sub-communities within uh, Tibet. Now, These terms actually are also kind of interesting in themselves, because they both refer to animals. The Katsara is is a term that's derived uh, from a Nepalese term that is itself slightly derogatory, meaning mule, with all the obvious biological implications. Uh, Most Tibetans I've spoken with suggest that they're unaware of this derogatory nature and that Katsara is simply an ethnonym for half Nepalese. Coco, on the other hand, is derived from the term coco yak, which is the offspring of a yak and a zoo, with a zoo being the cross between a yak and more of a domesticated cow. At any rate, so you can get this idea, and you might think that this is a, that Tibetans viewed these half Tibetans in a derogatory way, but actually it's far from the case. The problem, uh, with these half Tibetans, and I, why I think they're so critical to our understanding of Tibet broadly, but the kaji in particular, is that they reflect this openness um, to mixed marriages. Um, I don't want to go, again, too far afield, but one of the factors of Tibet having such a large monastic population, especially centered around Lhasa, was that Lhasa itself, um, the non-monastic population, skewed quite heavily towards women. So there were many women without partners. And so When foreigners did come to Lhasa in central Tibet, they tended to be uh, soldiers, uh, political advisors during the Qing, as well as merchants. But they also tended to be very short-term, and they tended to be single, young, and male. And thus, uh, how could I put this, kind of sexually active, right? And there was very few barriers for them to have relationships with Tibetan women. And so because the Tibetan society didn't have any uh, oppositions that we see these offsprings of these mixed marriages uh, being quite common. Now, all of these mixed marriage, the offsprings from these mixed marriages were considered to be Tibetan. And with the one exception, and this was the Katsars, and this is what introduces considerable confusion. The Katsars, due to a mid-19th century treaty, the male offspring, so male Katsars, um, retained legal standing of their Nepalese fathers. Now this had very specific rationale behind this was essentially often the Nepalese, usually Nawari traders, would cycle in and out of their time in Lhasa, and so they would leave these male children in charge of their ventures, and so that by giving them these commercial, tax, and political advantages, those children could retain those rights. Um, but within Tibet, they quickly uh, became kind of viewed in a negative way. And this was um, because they would often, it's not really contempt, it's almost kind of a scorn, because there was a belief among most Tibetans who were trying to compete with these half-Nepalese in commerce. And so they viewed these Katsars as using their legal standing and the protection often of the Nepalese council general posted to Lhasa to give them an unfair advantage. Now, the problem with this is that when outside observers noted this, when they linked that together with the false belief that the Kaji were also foreign, and then they would also put the half-Chinese, the Kokos, in this together, they often ascribed qualities and beliefs that were towards the Katsars to this larger group of the Kokos, kaji and Qatars together. So in other words, the same unsavory reputations, the same cultural marital practice, and the notion that the katsaras were not Tibetan. So to get back to the core of your question, which was, why do they name this chapter, How Half Tibetans Made Tibetan Whole? What I'm suggesting is that, but only by understanding this kind of very heterogeneous nature of Tibetan society, this very open manner in which Tibetans accepted the offspring of mixed marriages, can we truly appreciate the manner that the Kaji in particular played in Tibet, specifically not as foreigners. And increasingly after 1913, when the Qing dynasty fell and all of the Chinese soldiers, officials and merchants were expelled, that we begin to see that these offspring from mixed marriages and the kaji became the critical nodes by which tibet began to delineate who was and who wasn't tibetan right and i and i really i hope this would be a contribution to delineate how clear tibet believed that they were truly an independent state that they were defining who their subjects were and who their subjects weren't. And the kaji, the koko, and the guitars, I think, are really the lens through which we can see this most clearly in a very precise and distilled sense.
1: And going back to the title, maybe one more time, um, how did these people make Tibet whole then?
2: Right, yeah. So the it's maybe I also need to kind of offer a, a brief refresher course. So 1911, the Chinese Revolution occurred. Uh, in the last years of the Qing, the, they had sent an army of several thousand soldiers into Lhasa as a last gasp effort to kind of reassert Qing imperial control over Lhasa. It failed in a larger sense. Um, the troops succeeded in carrying out a lot of uh, violence and damage to the city and indeed caused the 13th Dalai Lama to flee over to the city of Darjeeling. But when he returned in 1913, he issued a proclamation that severed all ties with China and declared Tibet as an independent country. Now, these facts kind of fly in the face, in my opinion, of many histories, particularly the PRC histories, that try and emphasize that Tibet remained an inalienable part of China. but in fact um, if we remember that the early Republican China the 19-teens and 20s um, was a, a very chaotic scene shall we say in that uh, the central government in Beijing exerted very little control over the rest of China let alone a place like Tibet. It doesn't really require much imagine- imagination to understand exactly what the 13th Dalai Lama's proclamation meant. What that doesn't Mean, what I'm not trying to say is that China and Chinese certainly still believed Tibet was part of this new political republic. Um, But very few people, or I should say, no one in Lhasa or in Tibet was confused about this. And underscore this is that between 1913 and 1934, there are no central government officials posted to uh, Lhasa. So this is all a backdrop to suggest that when the Nanjing government, the Dang government, begins to try and reassert its control and officials begin to be sent there, they arrive and they begin to write reports back to China that are written in a language that I would suggest are deliberately obfuscating what the reality on the ground in Lhasa is. And what happens is that they are essentially identifying these kokos and these kaji as Chinese and Hui Muslims, respectively. In their Chinese reports, they're referring to these communities as Han and Hui, which... When you realize how deeply embedded this idea of the unity of the five races, a slogan that was pervasive in this time period, this whole wuzu gonghe, right? Um, that they, um, that by identifying these two groups as Chinese, essentially, they were insisting that that was kind of the toehold Of the Chinese state, that they were kind of the outliers of the Chinese state there. And they acted on, these Chinese officials acted on this belief. They attempted to co-opt the Grand Mosque and turn it into a Chinese school. They attempted to uh, define the Kaji as Hui. But all of these efforts were soundly rejected, by both the Khaji and Kokos, as well as the Tibetan government. So this is kind of a, a long winded way to say that what we see is that these half Tibetans become the focal point for outsiders to assert their representation in Tibetan society. And once again, as I kind of said in answer to the last question, by the Tibetan government, by very forcefully rejecting those cases and very effectually um, doing this, defending the fact that these Kaiji and Koko are Tibetans, that's what I say that they, in fact, are making Tibetan whole. Because it's by these definitions we begin to see a hardening boundary of who are Tibetan subjects, and therefore we can begin to say, what we see as a Tibetan state is and is
1: not. Thank you. It's very fascinating. And Chapter 4, Himalayan Asia, turns to the first few years of post-1949 Tibet in the PRC era. Um, How were the country and the half-Tibetans understood under the People's Republic of China when it occupied Tibet in the early 1950s? Um, And how did this fit into the geopolitics of Himalayan Asia at the time?
2: Right. I mean, again, I mean, I, I hope the continuity of this kind of pre-49 and post-49, we can really see how important uh, the Khaji and these other half Tibetan peoples are. Um, the arrival of the People's Liberation Army in 51 is perhaps only second to 1959, in the amount of scholarship that is written on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that most of the listeners will know the general setup mm-hmm. that The 14th Dalai Lama fled to India uh, in advance of the Chinese invasion. That then the 17 point agreement between Tibet and China was signed. There was no international assistance, and the Dalai Lama returned to oversee a tense but actually very interesting period of autonomy that existed from 51 to 59. Uh, We see uh, Lhasa, there's this influx of Chinese troops Chinese cadres Chinese civilians um, but although the initial months maybe even a year we begin to see a very high rate of inflation we begin to see a shortages of goods after that initial year when things began to calm down a bit we see a, about a half decade about five or six years of commercially very successful and i think a very vibrant period that doesn't get as much attention in scholarship and part of the reason for this is that under the rules of the 17th 17 point agreement is that the chinese government paid for all goods in silver dollars All the soldiers and government officials that posted to Lhasa drew their salaries in silver and also paid for all their goods in this. So Tibet was the only part of China that had not been forcibly converted over to the Chinese currency, the renminbi. And I say this because it also meant that goods not available elsewhere in China were available in Tibet. Some simple things like American powdered milk, uh, candies, uh, Indian silks. The my When I did the oral interviews, they would always talk about Parker pens. I'm not sure why that stands out, but it did. But from written accounts, I've also known that uh, luxury goods like French perfumes, German cameras, Italian accordions, also especially valuable were the Rolex watches, the other European watches. Why this is important is because the kaji, especially the Barkour kaji, were central actors in the trade to bring these items in. And so many of the caravaneers, uh, caravaneers that I interviewed boasted of selling off their complete inventory within days. In other words, they were benefiting monetarily from the arrival of the Chinese, right? So in this kind of inverted way, we can see that there is a positive ray of light, at least for the kaji, but also other uh, Muslim, Buddhist Muslim, uh, Tibetan Buddhist traders as well, um, who profited from this arrival. Similarly, the Barkor, I'm sorry, the Wabalin kaji profited because they were um, of their linguistic and cultural roles as intermediaries. They kind of in opposition or kind of in contrast to the Bar Korkaji, uh were taking out roles that assisted the Chinese in Tibet. Given the limited number of um bilingual speakers of both Chinese and Tibetan, the Wabalinkaji were in high demand as translators, but also as, uh, I'm not sure what the right term, cultural intermediaries might be the best term we can think of it, for officials and soldiers. And also they served as teachers. Some of the, they they immediately rose to some of the top ranks as, as teachers. Um, and so what we see in the early 1950s is that these Um, peoples, the Kokos, the Katsaras, and even the Nepalese themselves played a powerful role in Tibet. Um, And they kept many of these relationships, these traditional relationships of Himalayan Asia uh, alive. So I would say maybe as kind of, I I mentioned K.I. Singh earlier in that this was the period where he fled into Nepal And what we see is an interesting effect of the diplomatic, the lingering diplomatic ties uh, from that um, period.
1: All right. Thank you. And in the same chapter, uh, you also point out that there has been um, indeed a lingering tendency in recent scholarship to isolate narratives Tibet's past from mainstream accounts of Asia's past um, here you remind us that, quotes uh, many of the seminal forces that shaped Tibet, particularly in the 1950s, emerged out of the same complex post-colonial historical uh, trends that swept across Asia after World War II, unquote. Uh, Can you speak more o- on those points, uh, especially in what ways were Tibet's responses have in common with the broader post-colonial Asian experience?
2: Yeah, That again, that's a... Uh a question that's kind of dear to my heart. I think it's easy to forget uh, those moments um, when we realize that we individually each view a history through our own very particular viewpoint. It's like the difference when you ask a Chinese, a Brit, or an American, what year World War II began, right? And each, each of us give a different answer. And so I think, as Americans, we often believe the entire world in after World War II shifted to this kind of immediately shifted into this kind of Cold War thinking, right? We think of Berlin or whatever the division of uh, Asia, but Asia was going through a very different process, right? There was uh, a new kind of post-colonial world, a world that didn't happen immediately at the end, right? There was a lingering effort by many European colonial powers to hold to their uh, their colonial states. And so uh, the partition of India doesn't occur until 1947. Um, Southeast Asia and other parts of Asia don't see their um, kind of independence occur until much later. But out of this, there's a, a, a window in which these countries across Asia and Africa that try and take this moment to take a hold of the tiller of their own future direction directing their own future uh, by in their own hands and they this is I think most easily seen in the bandone conference where essentially the former colonial powers as well as the United States and uh, Soviet Union were excluded deliberately because they wanted to try and forge a path by themselves now I don't want to get into the details of the bandone conference itself But one of the outcomes was this, was how to deal with two of the largest overseas populations, particularly overseas Chinese and overseas Indians, who had, by this redrawing of these colonial maps into independent nations, had found these communities essentially left in these newly formed countries. In particular, the 1.1 million Chinese who ended up in Indonesia were of prime concern, both to Indonesians, but also of the new newly formed Chinese government. And the question was, what do you do with these people? Um, what is their nationality? And I highlight this because at the end of the Bandung Conference… Indonesia and China made this bilateral accord on dual citizenships that essentially was going to allow individuals two years to choose what country they wanted to belong to. Now, this may seem unrelated to all the themes that we've been talking about up until now, but if you kind of put these actions in parallel to what was going on in Tibet, you see that up until 55, there was this optimism across Europe, again, that is typified in the Bandung Conference, similar to what I was just describing in answer to your last question about this kind of commercial success that was emerging in Loss and Central Tibet. After 55, we begin to see things both across Asia and in Tibet to sour in very um, similar ways. We begin to see political tightening within China, especially in that ethnographic area of Tibet that I was talking about in Amdo, Qinghai, the western part of Sichuan, where these new political reform movements in areas where ethnic minorities weren't protected caused many of these peoples to begin to flow into this area that was under control of the Dalai Lama's government in ways that began to make the Chinese government very insecure. Similarly, the Chinese government began to become increasingly unhappy with Indonesia's unwillingness to sign off on this accord. And so by the late 1950s, China essentially begins to put together a flotilla of boats and tries to liberate uh, those uh, Chinese who are living in Indonesia, and that sparks um, a new sentiment among many individuals living in Tibet who had lived in Tibet for decades, if not centuries, like the Kaji, to begin to rethink their own uh, citizenship in ways that um, made them think that maybe this was the time that they should be leaving Tibet. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that in the Kaji, we see these commonalities with broader post-colonial Asian experience, commonalities that I would say rise to the fore um, in parallel with the 1959 March uprising.
1: Thank you for that. Um, And chapter five, I guess, speaking of the 1959 March uprising, Chapter 5 focuses uh, specifically on this event, but as well um, as the Tibetan Muslim incident of 1960, these two major events in modern uh, Tibetan history. Can you tell us a little bit about these two significant events, um, how they are related, and what they meant for the country?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, if I guess if I just characterize the 1951 arrival of Chinese as the second most written on topic. 1959 March Uprising is certainly uh, one of the events in Tibetan history that's most written about. And when I was writing this chapter, I was slightly concerned because i it's one of those things where you, when you confront as a historian, how do you retell a story that's been told so often without losing its impact? Because the 1951 59 March Uprising is one of those events in history that is so much more than the sum of its parts. I mean it's for me every time I go back and look at those documents it's really heart-rending. And it's I I don't want our familiarity um with that event to drain it of its meaning. And it was really hit home to me that when I was looking through a backlog of the people's daily the I newspaper mean, and i came across and it was this was a shock to me i came across a photo of the burned out grand mosque um the attack of the grand mosque happened during the 1959 uprising and it uh reflected for me, that there are elements that still had not been told about this, that, that had been left out of the basic rote telling of the uprising, right? And this gets back to Carol McGranahan's idea of arrested histories, right? How does these elements, which I think are so, that, that rose to the level that the Chinese newspaper was reporting on them, uh, how was it left out of it? So that attack on the uh, Grand Mosque, which again is the uh Mosque, Um, reflects that this 1959 uprising was not simply Tibetan on Chinese violence or Chinese on Tibetan violence. And there are some very famous examples um, that we see Tibetan on Tibetan violence when that usually the the standard telling of this account is that the first casualties of this uprising are not Chinese, but rather two high-level Tibetans who were working for the Chinese. But those attacks, I think, are very are very different than what we see when they, the Tibetans burn down the wobbling Grand Mosque. Because, unlike the specific attacks on individuals that these other accounts relate, this was an assault essentially against an entire community. And it, it took me quite a long time to s- understand what was going on because, essentially, the Chinese adopted. And promoted this attack on the wobbling community as a way to, or an attempt to undermine the legitimacy of the Tibetan uprising, which was that they labeled themselves the uh, anti-religion army, right? That they were trying not to, that the Chinese were trying to suppress Buddhism. And so the Chinese government used this attack on the mosque as a way to say, look, it's the Tibetans who are against these other religions, not us. And so we see um, a series of very orchestrated uh, propaganda, essentially, trying to to spin this attack as an example of um, Tibetan violence against uh, non-Tibetan Buddhists. And Essentially, what happens is that this runs its course, it lasts only a few weeks, and then they begin to pivot away. And I, I just want to tell one story is that actually, I, I desperately wanted to include that picture in my book. And I spent a considerable time of effort trying to get the rights. And I, I actually I tracked down the photographer uh, through a friend who um, said he would he actually signed a statement saying that he would uh, that allow me to publish this. And I very quickly received notification from Xinhua, the new China news agency, saying that no, the property rights of that photo still belong to them and I would not be allowed to use that photo. So clearly this is still a very sensitive uh, topic for them, even if in that instance it wasn't Chinese attack. All of this to say is that um, while they're promoting the Tibetan attack on this mosque, simultaneously and not published in the paper, the Chinese government is attacking the bar core Kaji community. And I highlight this in the book because what it shows is that by this point, by 1959 and into 1960, the Chinese government is very aware of these two different communities and the difference between them. And so On March 21st, the very day that the Chinese secured victory over the Tibetans, they begin to attack the Barkor community. And I I won't go into the details, which uh, those who are interested can read in the book. But uh, through threats, arrests, and really daily intimidation, they begin to try and force the Barkor Khaji to sign agreements that state they are Tibetan or Hui, but essentially by being Tibetan or Hui, thus are Chinese citizens. And the Barkokaji go on this campaign in cahoots with the Indian consul general who has posted a Lhasa to,
0: um,
2: to deny that they are Chinese and declare themselves to be Indians. Now this is, then we we have to then think back to the issue that I outlined briefly just a moment ago about China demanding that overseas Chinese in Indonesia be given the right to be Chinese or Indonesian. And so the Barcourt Kaji begin to use this rationale against the Chinese government. And the Indian government then picks it up as well and essentially says, the Indian government says to the Chinese government, we are simply asking that you use the same logic that you are applying to overseas chinese in indonesia to these kaji which they said were kashmiri by ancestry in the same way be allowed to choose to become indian citizens now that request occurred in late spring of 1960 and over the next couple of months there was no response and the chinese simply doubled their redoubled their efforts to pressure the kaji the Barkhor to become Chinese. Um, it peaked in July, but then suddenly on September second, with no advance notice, the Barkhor were told that they would be allowed um, to be uh, to proceed to India, and that the Chinese government essentially said, "We consider you to be Chinese citizens, but we will allow you to leave uh, to India." And so by early 19. 19- I should say by late 1960 in October and September, we begin to see truckloads of several hundred kaji and Nepalese be uh, trucked out of Tibet to the Indian border where they're met um, up on through early, early 1961 when we know from the registers of um, documented by the Tef- Tibetan Muslim Refugee Association that over a thousand kaji left Tibet. So, that by the summer of 1961, the entire Barkor Kaji community at Lhasa and all other major cities in central Tibet were emptied of these Barkor Kaji. Any Kaji that could um, show that they had ancestral ties to Kashmir were allowed to leave, all except for five. Uh, Tibetan Muslim prisoners, who the Chinese officials indicated that prisoners were not part of this agreement, and these five, unfortunately, were never allowed to see their family again, and all but one died in prison. And so, I guess in this way, this what we see is that the March Uprising of 1959 is inextricably intertwined with the Tibetan Muslim Incident of 1960.
1: Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this chapter, for sure. Um, and to continue on our discussion about this migration, this huge migration of people out of Tibet, the last um, and the sixth chapter of the book entitled Prisoners of Shangri-La, well, which I assume is a nod to Dr. Donna Lopez's uh, book of the same title, um, here, this chapter compares the different experiences within the exiled Tibetan communities in India, especially contrasting the intentional refugee status and refusal of Indian citizenship of most exiled uh, Tibetan Buddhists, with, on the other hand, um, the Khaje's acceptance of Indian citizenship. So what was the Khaje experiences in India, particularly in relation to the Central Tibetan administration, the, the CTA?
2: Right. No, I mean, this is, again, I mean, I think th- this entire book, there's so much to unpack, it becomes very difficult because we have to keep these parallel experiences in mind. And so in this instance, I think part of the reason I've alluded to Donald Lopez's book, The Prisoners of Sangha La is because he elucidates so clearly the experience of the Tibetan Buddhist exodus into India and the consequences that had for them. The Tibetan Muslims, however, arrived in a manner that was completely different than the Tibetan Buddhists, right? They, they, they traveled quite literally a different path. They were on a road. They were trucked to the border. They were greeted by Indian officials. They, they fought um, in Tibet. They fought using bureaucratic and political tools. They didn't simply flee like the majority of the Tibetan Buddhists did. But most importantly... They were legally allowed to leave China, and thus they arrived in India, not as refugees, but as Indian citizens. Tibetan Buddhists, on the other hand, they were refugees, and they wore that label as a mantle, right? They, that advertised their desire to return to Tibet. They, Especially those inter generations, they adamantly did not want to become Indian citizens. This was a very different look than the kaji and one that appears, in my estimation, to have formed some sort of barrier. Um, the Tibetan community, the Tibetan Buddhists and the Tibetan Muslims, maintain cultural relations, but their divergent statuses in India created this kind of unmistakable divide. I, I do want to make one caveat here in that I don't want to suggest that there was any uh, anonymity between the two groups. And In fact, in my research, I came across multiple letters from the Dalai Lama to the head of the Tibetan Muslim Refugee Association. And they're they're eloquent, beautiful letters that really highlight in my esteem how wonderful the 14th Dalai Lama is, even in these trying times. Yet, despite that, the Tibetan government in exile never invited the Tibetan Muslims, to be part of that government. And so it set the Khaji refugees, or citizens now, on a very different path. And their choices were very different than the Tibetan Buddhist refugees because they entered into a land, India, where their Muslim identity colored them in a very different way. Way than it had back in Tibet, and I think they were very much uh, lost for the first weeks and months. Uh, There was they were still dealing with the psychological stress from the previous two years, and they had a very strange feeling that even though they were among Tibetan Buddhist refugees, which they were in Kalimpong Darjeeling, they didn't know how to proceed. And so they, by November of 1960, they held this meeting um, with the heads of the refugee families in attendance, and they took a vote. And the majority voted to move on to Kashmir, to Srinagar and Kashmir. Um, And it's funny, I I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but the rationale they give in the notes from that meeting suggests the reason that they want to go there is that they prefer the climate and the weather. And so you get this kind of idea that the decision was made more, I think, on this idealistic idea of what a return to Kashmir would be like and when they eventually did retire arrive in Srinagar which was late um in the summer of uh, probably early fall 61 they realized it was it was quickly not as peaceful or as simple as they had hoped and this gets into a whole different issue it's the issue of Kashmir which again has come to the fore of issue right now with the Indian government recently declaring that Kashmir is no no longer has a special status. But in the 1960s, Kashmir had a special status whereby permanent residents could only be those individuals who were resident in the state prior to um, May of 1954, I believe. And this was A lot of background here, but essentially they wanted to keep that Hindu-Muslim balance. And so the Kajis that settled there, though they were Indian citizens, could never be Kashmiri residents. And so they could not avail themselves of many of the benefits that other Kashmiri residents had, including education, but other social services. And so it, the first years there, the Kaji, um, I think was a very sad existence um, because they felt they f- they thought by moving there they would be treated as returning Kashmiris. Um, in fact, they turned to be out very similar to their Tibetan Buddhist counterparts in that they were viewed as Tibetan refugees and very much, I think, lived and experienced as refugees. Now, the the minority that remained in Kalimpong and Darjeeling. Uh, fared far better but they again were a minority so the contradiction between the case that the kaji made when they came over the border um and the indian government essentially assisted them the experience they found once in india was one of real i think very thinly veiled uh And the government ignored their experience because they were overwhelmed with the larger experience of the Tibetan Buddhists with the Dalai Lama. And by the end, 80,000 Tibetan Buddhist refugees that flowed after them. So it was a very disorienting experience for the entire Kaji community.
1: Thank you. And the same chapter also points out a very intriguing point right here. I quote in your book, uh, Tibetan Muslims escape the fate of the Tibetans an exile community who successfully fled Tibet only to become, in the words of Donald Lopez, prisoners of Shangri-La. Can you maybe tell us what you mean by this uh, very interesting argument and how is the situation of the Tibetan Muslims compared to the Tibetan Buddhists who now often found themselves compelled to play this romanticized Western ideas of Tibetan Buddhism?
2: Right, you 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 nicely nicely summarize kind of Dr. Lopez's uh, view, and again, this is one of those books that has really, when I read it for the first time, was really powerful in my own thinking about the experience of the Kaji. But to put it again, simply, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but essentially, what Lopez was arguing was that the exiled Buddhist Tibetan Buddhist community in India and elsewhere in the world became. Dependent on Indian and Western support, and thus often found themselves compelled to play to these kind of uh, romanticized Western romanticized ideas of Tibetan Buddhism, and then they became prisoners of this shangri law. And so, I, I gave this chapter that that title, both as a you know a very overt nod to Donna Lopez's title, but also to the suggestion that simply because the kaji were given Indian citizenship it wasn't like they benefited in, in entirely, as I was kind of just hinting at. And I suggested that really they're still prisoners of Shangri-La. Um, if I was to extend that metaphor, maybe they were put into a slightly different compound um, because they, they, if you will, they were their experiences diverged from those of the Tibetan Buddhists who had fled Tibet months ahead of the Kaji's own exodus. But they... Khaji, the Tibetan Muslims, when they claimed Kashmiri ancestry and they arrived as Indian citizens, they somehow forfeited their life as Tibetan refugees, and thus, in the eyes of most Tibetan Buddhists, they forfeited their Tibetan identity. And this was you know a kind of a prison of their own making, right? That that this again. They're prisoners of shangri-la. they've They've left Tibet, but now they're by that choice of leaving, they are in this new prison of their own making. And they were pr- prisoners because that vision of what Tibet was, and what the Tibetan Buddhists were following, this increasingly romanticized view. Was one built on Tibetan Buddhism? So there was increasingly, internationally speaking, there was no room if they chose to even participate in that romanticized view. And once again, I'd like to note that the the Dalai Lama actually is one of the light voices, enlightened voices in this. And throughout these decades, was always open in a dialogue with the Tibetan Muslims. But again, Carol McGranahan, I think articulates this really well and again I'm probably going to get this wrong um, but she talks about how in exile Tibet many of these details um, because of this unitary vision she speaks of they flatten many of this these differences, this heterogeneity that exists among the Tibetan community and so I think that's very much this new prison of Shangri-La that the Tibetan Muslim qajis uh, encountered.
1: Thank you. Well, Dr. Atlo, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we end our podcast today, we have one final question for you. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about projects that you're working on at the moment?
2: Sure. Uh, I mean, this the Islamic Shangri-La has taken up the last 10 years of my life, and so it's it's funny because it, it opened up a new new horizon for me. And so Right now, what I'm finishing are two projects that had kind of been pushed to the back burner. The first one I'm working on right now and should be hopefully out very soon is a second edition of the uh, Sources of Modern Chinese History. We had the first edition that came out about two years ago that I've co-authored with my wife, uh, Yurong. And we're updating that and, and putting new translations into it. And again, the reception of that has been the first edition was such that I, we never had intentions about doing a second edition, but people kept asking if we could create a second edition. So we're doing that. So that that's what we're doing right at the moment. Um, but also, be, perhaps as indicated by my willingness to do a second edition of a source, but I really believe that we're encountering a period where Academics are not writing enough for the general public. And in teaching the Modern China Survey, which at Penn State used to include the, the 19th century as well, I, I couldn't find any books on 19th century that were appropriate for an undergraduate audience. And so the other book that I'm I'm nearly completed with it should be also completed in the next few months, is a biography of Lin issue because Lin issue is one of those characters and as you could tell from the last hour of my comments um i'm really i don't like it when people are miscasting or kind of flattening out the details and i, I feel like lynn's gotten uh, a bad rap you know as he's known in the west as commissioner lynn and so this is another kind of a project that's close to my heart and i'm trying to make it uh, a very accessible uh, writing which is kind of kind of a nice antidote after Islamic Shangri La, which so often had me going into these very intricate details in history that's not familiar with a lot of people, this biography of Lin is actually writing in a very more expansive way, uh, which I, I find is a really nice kind of change of pace for me.
1: Thank you. Yeah, this is this is going to be very incredibly helpful um, for teaching. Um, you know, undergraduate classes on China, Chinese history, modern China, but also, you know, be a great kind of resource for graduate students too, right, in their research. That's very exciting. Well, thank you so much, you know, today for taking the time in these crazy times uh, to speak with us about your really fascinating and important book. So um, I thank you.
2: I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your questions.
1: Thank you. All right. Until next time. Bye bye.